Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. It's a joy to be with you. If you'd open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in the back for you. But it's also printed for you in your bulletin. So you can use that as well. We're going to read chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. There's also a couple of New Testament texts printed there for you. Uh, We'll get to those in due course this morning. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once... When Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for our time this morning. God in heaven, we rejoice and thank you that you've brought us here this morning, called by your word to sit beneath it. Lord, we couldn't know you without you revealing yourself to us, and so we praise you and thank you that you have. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit, who breathed out these words, who was active here in the life of Jacob and Esau, that you would be here among us this day, that you would speak through me, that I would speak boldly and truly of the things of Christ, and that all of us would see and treasure Christ Jesus, our Lord, our only hope in life and in death. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So as we're going through the book of Genesis... One of the things we want to recognize is that God, both through the actions towards the people of the story and through the recording of this story for those who would read it afterward, God is establishing, he's teaching us about what it looks like to be in relationship to him. Genesis is a tutorial of sorts. We saw that last week as we looked at the life of Abraham and the tutorial of faith, but we see it more broadly in the book of Genesis as well. We saw the original goodness of creation. 
We saw man's rebellion and rejection in the garden. We saw sin entering in, and we saw its consequences, that man was separated from God. We saw the wickedness that spiraled out of control in the aftermath. We saw the flood and Noah in judgment, and we also saw God's restraining grace. But even as we see sin and separation in the narrative of the scriptures, we also have seen this underlying theme of promise. That even in the curse of the serpent, there is a promise that one day a son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And so too, as the story plays out in the life of Abraham, we see God moving towards this particular man and his family, making big promises about how he is going to bless them and establish them. And what we've seen in the life of Abraham and what we said last week, say again, is that we see that God is the one who makes the promises. God is the one who keeps the promises. He does it. And the response of Abraham, the response of God's people, is one of faith. That's been a theme as we've gone. This week, we're going to see the continuing unfolding of God's revelation of himself in our relationship by focusing on an additional element that's been there, but it's going to be there more clearly in this story and from here on out, which is the principle of election. Now, election is a big word that doesn't really have anything to do with the thing that's going to happen in November this year. That's going to happen this year. It's going to happen. Um, (laughs) Except in this, that it is God's choosing. It's God's choosing here of Esau, of Jacob rather than Esau. Now, we've seen this before. The call of Abraham is itself a choosing. It's an election. There's millions of people, and God says, I'm going to put my blessing on you and your family. And then we see it in the distinction between Isaac and Ishmael, right? One is going to be favored and the other is not. But in both of those cases, we don't see as clearly as we do here in a story where we have two sons of the same mother in the same womb. And God says, I'm going to bless Jacob. The older will serve the younger We see in this text God's electing love, his choosing love. And then we see, I think we're going to see how faith interacts with that. So we have our theme of faith, which is still going to be here, but we also have this idea of election. Now, this is a big question for the people of God in the book of Genesis, for the original readers of Genesis, and it's a big question for us. But helpfully, Jacob and Esau can help us make some sense of it. Two points this morning for an outline if you're taking notes. First, the grace of election. And second, the grasp of faith. The grace of election and the grasp of faith. All right, let's get started with the grace of election. Notice where we are. Jacob has married Rebecca. That was the the arrangement of that was last week. But if you pay attention to the numbers here, it's been 20 years since they've been married and they've been unable to have children. Now, you know from our own experience in this life, and we know from our understanding of the ancient world and of Sarah, that's a big deal. It's a massive challenge in the life of these two people, as it is even today for those who struggle with infertility. But finally, God answers prayer, and Rebecca is pregnant, but it's not an easy pregnancy. Now, y'all got to remember, in the second century BC, they don't have ultrasounds, They they know what twins are, but it probably is a confusing thing. 
to experience the pregnancy of multiples. And Rebecca says, what is going on inside of my womb? It seems like there's a war. And she talks to God, and what does God tell her? Verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When the twins are born, it's clear what God is talking about. There are two sons. Esau is the first, and then Jacob And so we see in God's words, while the boys were still in her womb, this choice of Jacob over Esau, a choice that was contrary to the normal way of things. As the firstborn, the first one out, Esau would have held the right, the birthright, which we're going to sell away in a minute, which would have given him a double portion of the inheritance, would have received Isaac's special blessing, which we'll get to later on. And Paul makes a great deal of this in Romans chapter 9, which you have printed there for you, which we read this. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. That second phrase is from Malachi chapter 1, which is referring to Genesis 25 as well. Here we get to this term, election, God's purpose of election. God chooses Jacob. God chooses Jacob, and he does not choose Esau. That's a hard doctrine for us. Some of y'all know about this. Some of y'all might learn something this morning and scratch your heads and go, that, I don't get that. It's hard, first off, and perhaps the presenting difficulty is with these questions of sovereignty and free will. How could it be that God chooses certain people And does that mean I don't have freedom? All of these philosophical questions that are covered in an intro to philosophy class about determinism, they bubble up in our head. We also have the difficult question that's downstream of that, which is that if God is electing some, why is he not electing others? We'll talk a little bit about that. But what I want to suggest this morning as we look at this text is that the hardest problem with election, and the one that I think is behind those other problems is the radical nature of grace that we see in election. The radical nature of grace that is displayed in God's choosing. We see this in Jacob in two ways. And the story of Jacob is uniquely helpful because of what a dog Jacob can be. Um, notice two things about it. And the first is what, is what Paul points out. He's the blessing, the choice of Jacob comes before he's born. Paul makes a lot of this. It's God's choice has nothing to do with Jacob's life. Y'all see that? So God chooses before Jacob's done anything. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, God knew that Jacob was going to be a really good guy. And so, and Esau was going to be a slug. And so he chose Jacob. He just predicted that Jacob's going to be the one that's a great guy. This is where the story is so helpful because that's clearly not true. Jacob, at at, at a minimum, we're going to read the rest of Jacob's life, but just focus on what we got right here, okay? On any sort of level of brotherly love, kind of baseline brotherly affection, 
if you've got an exhausted, starving brother who comes to you and you've got a full pot of soup and asks for some, you ought to give it to him, right? There's, there's no world where that doesn't seem like a pretty, pretty low standard for righteousness. But Jacob, our buddy here, what does he do? He makes a deal, right? He's, it's, it's unfat, and, and, and his life continues. He's going to dress up as Esau later on in life and fool his dad into blessing him. The election of Jacob, both in its timing before his birth and then the life of Jacob that we see lived out, makes it entirely clear that it is a gracious choice, having nothing to do with Jacob himself. God's choosing of Jacob over Esau has nothing to do with Jacob's merit, and in fact, it stands against his demerit. It stands against the fact that God, that Jacob does not deserve the blessing of God. This is God's free will acting. God is not compelled by anything in Jacob to choose him for blessing. He is entirely free, and he says, I'm going to bless that one. Y'all see that? To say something slightly provocative, this is not justice. Taken in itself, this is not a just choice of Jacob. This is something different. This is grace. Jacob doesn't deserve it. He hadn't done anything, and when he does something, it's a mess. This is grace. That, friends, is the hardest part about election. Because what it means is that for those of, in this, those of us in this room who are Christians, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing about you in yourself that has merited or earned or deserved the blessing and favor of God. Now you say, well, that's the gospel, Chris. You say that every week. But, but that's offensive to our, to our little hearts. It's offensive to my heart. I, I think I'm pretty clever. I think I'm nicer than average, right? I th- don't you? Don't, <laughs> don't you look around? Not, not about me. That's not what I meant. <laughs> we spend our lives looking at our people around us and finding a way to settle into the thought, you, some of us, that, okay, we're pretty, like, I'm better than her, I'm better than him, right? I've got a good spot to sit in. Or, and we'll talk about this in a second, we despair. But let's save the despair for a second. That pride, which is in us, which is not some boasting, it's just like, yeah, God, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty decent person. That is excluded from the doctrine of election, by the doctrine of election. It's excluded by the grace of Jesus Christ. The reason that you are sitting here with faith in Christ has nothing to do with your merits or how good of a person you are, even a sliver of it. You are a mess and a traitor, and God saved you. When the scriptures talk about what it looks like for us to be saved, it calls us dead. Not mostly dead, right? Princess Bride reference. Not mostly dead, but fully dead. And then God brings us back to life. Our situation is so bad 
that God in saving us has to do this decisive act of resurrection in you. New birth. Okay? Here's what election is. God did that on purpose. We can get all caught up in the questions of sovereignty, but here's what election really just means. God saved you, and he did it on purpose. God saved you on purpose, and that purpose had nothing to do with anything inside of you. He did it, because he had to do it, because you were dead, okay? That's hard for me to get through my slightly clever, slightly nicer than other people brain every day. Because I would like, I am inclined to think that the reason that I get to be up here and preach to you guys is something in me that I'm not a clown like Jacob. But guys, I am. And so are you. To those of you in this room who are here and have not yet trusted in Jesus, what do we do with this? Well, I want you to see and stand in awe and be challenged by the grace of God on display here. You are sitting next to other Christians. You perhaps came here brought by one. Maybe it's your parent. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your friend. And sometimes they seem like good people who have it all together. That may be why you came to church. Because you look at this person and you say, they seem to get it. They seem happier than anybody else. I want to find that thing. That may also be really intimidating for you. Because that person seems like they have it all together and you don't. Other times, you look at that person next to you, maybe it's your spouse or your sibling or your parent or your friend, and you think that person is a hypocrite. They say they have it all together, but I know them. And I know better. They don't, they don't share their stew with me very often, right? <laughs> and that can be really off-putting. If you see a Christian who is a hypocrite, let me tell you, you have met a Christian, okay? They all are. We all are. I am. But the message of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, the radical grace we see in the doctrine of election is that God chose to save me in spite of all that, without reference to that. In fact, against that, he wouldn't bled for me. And that's good news for all of us. Because it means that we can be messed up schemers like Jacob. That we can be hypocrites. And we can still receive the blessing of God. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to get your act together. Y'all all dressed nicely this morning, most of you. But you didn't have to, right? God loves you because he chose to love you. And the gospel is for folks like Jacob. Okay. The grace part. Transition to talk about faith, the grasp of faith. There are some hard questions for us when we think about election, and particularly as it relates to our own experience. And I want to say a few things about that. The first is this, as a general principle, and this is something we should know. God's brain is bigger than yours. God knows things way more than you know things. The only way that we can know things that God knows is for God to tell us about them. 
right? If we did any sort of diagram that had a scale between us and God, it would not be sufficient, okay? God chooses to reveal certain things to us, but he does not download his entire brain into ours. That's an important thing for us to see as we look at the scriptures. And this is one area where that matters because God has told us about election, that this is how it works, in large part to let us see the graciousness of the gospel, but he has not told us who is elect. You will search the scriptures in vain and you will pray in vain to find a list of the folks who are chosen by God. In fact, our experience of faith and the way the Bible interacts with us is one very much in the realm of volition and choice. God calls us to be holy. He calls us to repentance when we're not, and he calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, all of which we experience as choices, right? When you struggle with sin, there's a moment. You're going to do it or you're not. And when you come to God in faith, some of y'all are in this moment right now. Am I going to choose to follow Jesus and put my trust in him? And that's a daily question for Christians as we wake up. And so we exist in the realm of freedom and volition and choice, and yet God says he's chosen some. Well, how does that fit together? Don't know. God didn't tell us. He told us they're both true. He doesn't tell us how it works together. But in this passage, we see a picture of it happening together, don't we? Because God says in the womb, Jacob, you're the guy. But then we see the story of Jacob and Esau played out over the next few weeks in our study of Genesis, and we see it's a, it's a drama full of decisions, full of relationships, full of choices. The choice whether or not Esau is going to give his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup, which I'll talk about in a second, is insane. Because lentil soup's disgusting. But we have both these things operating in the same plane, right? We have election and we have volition and choice. And that's what God gives us, okay? So, so I want to shift and think about that faith part of this. Because the struggle of Jacob and Esau is not just a picture of election, it's a picture of faith. And it's a picture of faith negatively and positively. And I want to think about first the negative, which is Esau. Esau is a man of unbelief. And in Esau's handling of the blessing of God, we see the nature of unbelief. Remember the scene, Jacob comes in from the field, or no, Esau comes in from the field, Jacob's hanging out with mom, cooking in, in the tents, but Esau's been working really hard and he's exhausted, and he's hungry and thirsty. He says he's going to die, he's almost certainly exaggerating, but what I do want us to see is he really feels this way, and, th and it's important, I think, the way the biblical narrative tells it to us. This is more than just, I'd like, you know, something negligible. Like, can I have a glass of water? I'm sitting here. I need something. He's in real need. I, I, I grew up playing football in Texas. And you can't tell by the way I look now, but that was once my vocation. Um, in Texas, you play football at the worst possible time, which is to say from August to about October, early November which is a miserable time to put on equipment and go sit outside in the sun uh, for three hours in the afternoon every day. Some of y'all have 
run marathons. I don't really care what workout analogy works for you. But I can remember coming off of a football field week by day by day in August heat in Houston with the humidity 100% and the, the temperature 105. That's, that's how I can see Jacob here, or see Esau here. He is, he, he is saying literally, well, actually it turns out literally, I would do anything for, and I need to substitute Gatorade here because the idea of, again, lentil soup, what are we thinking here, okay? Um, my wife thinks that lentil, that she likes lentil soup, and she thinks that soup is a meal. I, I, I do not say this with the authority of God, but I do not think that lentil soup is, is a meal. But Esau likes it, and he wants it. And Jacob puts this preposterous deal in front of him, and he takes it. He's so thirsty and tired and hungry, and he doesn't really care about the birthright. And so he takes the deal. That's what Moses, in interpreting this at the end of our text, says, right? He despised his birthright. It's important to see here, the economics, he just divided his inheritance in half. That's what happened to him. He's getting half of what he was going to get before, because the firstborn gets a double portion. That's not the real point here, though. The point that Genesis wants us to see, that God wants us to see this morning, is that he, he's heard the stories about Grandpa Abraham and his father Isaac and this promise of God that's going to pass down. And he doesn't care. He's thirsty. This, this doesn't mean anything to him. And that's what, that's what unbelief looks like in our life. It's, it, sometimes we can be really hardened atheists and have lots of, lots of really strong opinions against Christianity. But most of the time, it's just indifference. Indifference combined with an appetite for whatever is in front of us. And that's, what, that's what's going on with Esau here. He's hungry and thirsty. His brother's being a jerk, but whatever. Give me some soup. Y'all see that? He's despised his spiritual inheritance. And this is what Hebrews does with it. That passage from Hebrews 12. <coughs> Hebrews is in the context, it's written to Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism, who are facing persecution for their Christian faith. And it's full of warnings and encouragements like this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author of Hebrews says, Esau is a picture of what it looks like for you, persecuted Christian, to choose your comfort in life now over the blessings that Christ has promised you. I'll see that. Don't be like Esau. Recognize the value of the eternal things before you and say to your dumb brother Jacob, are you kidding me? That's what we should have done. Okay, what about, what about Jacob? Well, I want to suggest, perhaps surprisingly at this point in the sermon, that Jacob is a picture of faith for us here. And this is the case when we read our Old Testament, that the types we see in the Old Testament are not always uh, unmixed they're real people, that's what I want to say. And Jacob's a real person, and he's a slug, and that slugness is part of what we need to see in his life. But what I want us to focus on is his faith. 
Genesis 25 shows us Jacob who longs for the blessing that will come through Abraham and Isaac and is doing whatever it takes to get it. Surely this is not the first time that afternoon that he thought about taking the birthright from, from his brother. If it was, that was quite a thought in the moment. But more reasonably, he's probably been sitting there for years, seething, thinking, how am I going to get the blessing that he's supposed to get? And voila, he's thirsty and hungry, and I've got a delicious bowl of lentil soup. Let's give that to him. And it's not the last time he's going to be in this frame of mind, because at the end of Isaac's life, in Genesis chapter 27, we see, some of y'all will know this story, Jacob dressing up as Esau and fooling his blind father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn so that he can have it. Now, he's duplicitous and deceptive, but he's a picture of faith because he valued the blessing. He valued the inheritance in contrast to Esau. And this is what faith is, guys. It's grabbing a hold of the blessing. And we see this vividly in the picture of the delivery room where the first twin comes out, Esau, and they look down and there's a hand attached to his ankle, which is the second child on his way out. That's vivid. From the very birth, Jacob is grabbing on to the firstborn, trying to obtain the blessing that he would have. That's where his name comes from. It's a play on the word heal. It's also a play on the word deceiver, which Esau points out later. We can do that another time. Jacob is a picture of faith. And here's what I want us to see this morning. If we take away the deception and the scheming, although truth be told, we're sinners too, we see Jacob grabbing a hold of his older brother that he might have his blessing. And that, brothers and sisters, is what faith is. And that's what faith is in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is your older brother. The inheritance and the blessing is his. And in faith, what do you do? You reach out and you receive Christ. That's it. And holding on to him, you receive his blessing. United to Christ, his inheritance is yours. Faith is grabbing the heel of Jesus and never letting go. Jacob's a picture of that faith in this text. The mystery of election is a mystery in part. and It's not fully revealed to us. It's revealed enough for us to see the grace of God. What is fully revealed to us and is fully revealed to you this morning is the free offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That all you need to do is to despair of your own doing and reach out and grab a hold of Jesus. And in grabbing on, you're not even meriting that thing. You're just receiving the grace that he works in you. Don't be like Esau. Cling to Jesus. That's our, that's our text this morning. Cling with all your life. And if you are a Christian this morning in this room... Hold on tight. Remember when you were a kid and you rode your bike and eventually you like took one hand off and then two hands off and you're riding without any hands? 
It's got nothing to do with faith, okay? That's a terrible illustration of anything. You don't let go of Jesus, all right? Here's another vivid and maybe graphic illustration for you, but I'm going to leave you with this. Christ Jesus is the firstborn of new creation. In our faith, though we exist in a world that groans in the pains of childbirth, that the sons of God might be revealed in glory, Christ has already passed through. Faith, brothers and sisters, is you reaching out and grabbing onto Jesus' heel, the one who has been resurrected, and you will be resurrected with him in glory. That's what it looks like in this world. That's what we're doing right now. Don't let go. Hold him tight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Oh, we thank you. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for your gospel truth. Thank you for just the privilege of sitting beneath your word. Would you make it bear fruit in our lives that we might go out and live the life of Jesus even as we cling to him? That our lives would smell like, look like, taste like Jesus to the world and that we would invite others to grab a hold to. We pray this in his blessed name. Amen.